Broadcasting from the studios of Business Radio X, it's time for Litigator's Lounge. This show is brought to you by Hall Booth Smith, guiding clients through challenging workplace legal issues. Now, here are your hosts. All right, welcome to this episode of the Litigator's Lounge where legal minds converge to dissect and discuss the intricate web of laws, cases, and the issues shaping the world of litigation. I'm Jackie Voronov. I'm here with my partner, Shiley Bannon, joining us all the way from beautiful Jacksonville, Florida. How are you today, Shiley? I'm good. It's actually a really beautiful day out. It's starting to feel like spring. You're always rubbing it in, the fact that you're in Florida and I'm in New Jersey. (laughs) And I have to tell you, I'm getting a little tired of it. Sorry, I feel like the weather is just this benign thing, but I guess it can be a a pressure point when you don't live in Florida. We have so many other things that Florida is infamous for that I feel like I I have to take the winds where they come. (laughs) That's true. How's How's everything been with you? It's good. I was actually looking on social media the other day and I saw this a meme that we've talked about my love of social media and good workplace memes before. And there was this joke where it was a picture of Margot Robbie dressed as Barbie. And the text on the meme said something to the effect of, here's to all of those feminists who girl boss so hard so that I would have to work and run a family and do all of the things that that I have to do in a day. Right. Keep up with this idea. So women's rights and and the, the first wave of feminism, right? Thanks, Barbie, for forcing me to work my job while working on my mental health, while working on my relationships, while working on my physical health, while working on my family, while working on my sleep habits, my professional development, while working on my self-care. Right. Don't forget to moisturize. Don't, while don't working. <laughs> so I'm really excited, though, because March 1st starts... Women's History Month here in the United States. And it does. it does. And I know that this is a month that you always enjoy recognizing as well, and that you have some presentations that you often give in March on these very topics. I do. I love for me, I think every month is Women's History Month. I'm a staunch pro female advocate. So I'm here for it. And any month that's going to recognize women and our accomplishments and how far we've come since our days of corseted constraints. I am all here for it. We've gone from suffragettes rallying for the right to vote to female senators. Kim Kardashian still does the corseting thing. Now it's called waist training. So we really do come in a circle. But today I'm really excited because what we're going to do is we are going to go back in time and I get to do a history lesson, which yeah. I've been asking you if we can do on this show since the beginning. Look at the smile. I know that the listeners can't see how happy you look right now, but I think that you've never looked cuter. You just look so happy about this. In a, in a past life, I dreamed of being a history professor, but my parents told me that the lifestyle that I enjoy living would not be supported by a career in academia. So they made me go to law school instead. Let's do both. Maybe one day when I have a little more time. So today we're going to talk about. Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the birth of the sex discrimination clause in the Civil Rights Act and some of the body of law that has developed in the 60 years since that legislation was passed. So 
What's your starting point on this? How far back are we going? Are we going back to the Garden of Eden or to like Hammurabi's code when women were actually chattel? Or where do you think is a good point in this linear progression to set up shop here? It's really interesting because when you actually read some of the academic literature about the Civil Rights Act and the inclusion of sex discrimination in the Civil Rights Act, a lot of people actually do bring it all the way back into the 1800s with the early suffragette movements. But I think that for today's purposes, since we do only have limited time, probably starting back to the early part of 1964. So I'm waving my fingers a la Wayne's world and bringing us back to very early 1964. Picture it. Yes. Okay. Lyndon B. Johnson is president suddenly after JFK was assassinated in November of 1963. We all remember the grassy knoll, or at least- I don't remember it. We remember it from pop culture, even us. Spring chicken. Gen Z only knows it if they've seen it on a TikTok. But before he died, President Kennedy had asked Congress to put together a comprehensive civil rights bill. Um, This was primarily in response to the assassination of Medgar Evers and just the heightened civil rights movement that was happening at the time. Johnson, who has terrible street cred for foreign policy and Vietnam, actually gets a lot of credit for domestic policy, advancing the great society. And some of this was actually really started by Kennedy, but Johnson, who was very effective in Congress at marshalling votes and things like that, he gets a lot of credit for this. So he tells Congress, get to work. And I could quote Kim Kardashian again here, but, or Brittany, but they they all, yeah, better work. That's how in my head, I see this as having gone down. I just envision Lyndon B. Johnson walking out into the congressional chambers and just looking around at 1964 Congress and saying, you better work. Yes. And if you read the actual transcripts, it does sound very much like that with a couple of gentleman and gentlewoman from Kentucky is thrown in there. So February of 1964, Congress has done what Kennedy and Johnson have asked of them, which is very different than the Congress that we have now in 2024. And they actually worked. Yeah, a little. Yeah. Uh, And they put together a bill that is now known as the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And guess what? What? In the very first draft of this, and as it's going through committee in the House of Representatives, there is no mention of gender, or as it was known in the 60s, sex discrimination anywhere in the Civil Rights Act. That would be unheard of. Discrimination on the basis of gender or sex. Right. Get out of here. How do we get there? How do we get sex because of sex, that line thrown in? I'm going to take you to February 8th, 1964. Representative Howard Smith from Virginia. He is an 80-year-old segregationist. He stands up on the eighth day of congressional debate over the Civil Rights Act. So it's basically a Hanukkah miracle. And proposes... (laughs) (laughs) Proposes an amendment to Title VII which deals with equal employment opportunities and protection for employment discrimination to include protection for employment discrimination on the basis of sex. And that's in quotes on the basis of sex. The bill had already included protection for race, for color, religion, and national origin, but it was silent as to sex until representative Smith stands up and suggests it out of the blue after lunch. But that was one of kind of the the notable things about Lyndon Johnson, right? He understood that getting a law passed 
in the whole totality in which he might have wanted it passed would never fly because he did have to walk that fine line between the liberals on the one hand, the conservatives on the other. So they figured let's pass something that's better than nothing addressing this was meant always meant to be about voting rights, right? They figured that eventually if they could amend it later, they'd be groovy. And so they didn't anticipate that's what would happen. Am I understanding this right? Yeah. So the Civil Rights Act itself, with all of the sections that it had, dealt with so many different topics, voting rights because of the Jim Crow laws that were very prevalent in the South, uh, public accommodation rights, uh, and the Title VII, which deals with employment. But it was really primarily the directive of Johnson after Kennedy that, that the Civil Rights Act needed to focus on, on race discrimination and national origin discrimination. Neither of them ever really contemplated the inclusion of sex protection. And so when Howard Smith, this 80-year-old segregationist, stands up and says, what about the ladies? Uh, Everybody scratches their head, but some people recognize what's happening. He did it claiming that it was for laughs. And I, doing this episode, I actually had the opportunity to go back and read the the verbatim transcript of this hearing. He tells a lot of jokes about how women are so aggrieved and he reads letters he's getting from uh, his constituents about how women are not protected in the workplace. And there is so much laughter on the floor that he has to stop several times. Uh, Some other congressmen jump in and laugh about how their wives are certainly not oppressed because all they all the men ever say at home is yes dear very tongue in cheek but what a lot of the other congress people understood was happening was that Howard Smith was trying to insert a, a poison pill in the civil rights act by including sex discrimination in a, a bill that would really be meant for racial discrimination his hope was that there would be different constituents or different interest groups that would cause other Congress people to waver about voting in favor of this bill. So he was really trying to kill this bill. Oh, sneaky politicians. And when you read the congressional history, there's actually a congressman from New York who is who is opposed to this amendment, opposed to including sex discrimination, saying sex discrimination is something that's really different. It's not exactly a civil rights issue. We'll deal with that later. He reads some he reads some letters actually from the Department of Labor that is and from the President's Commission on Women saying we're not exactly sure that there's so much discrimination against women or that women have it so bad in the workplace. We need to do some more studies on this. And remember, at the same time, there's also the Equal Rights Amendment that's being pushed and discussed. And in its early days, people are thinking that the Equal Rights Amendment is going to be the vehicle for women's rights. So it came first. Equal pay. Yeah. Uh, yes, I I think so. But he is, he's really looking at the, at this in terms of let's talk about this later. And ultimately, the argument that is believed to have carried the day, why we have the inclusion of sex as a protected class in Title VII, is that the argument that was made actually by female congresswomen, congresswomen, without the inclusion of that protected class, that Black women would have had preferential treatment and would be more protected than white women in the workplace. So that's what he was trying to avoid. Is that right? 
he was trying to avoid there being any protections for black people in the workplace through the Civil Rights Act. That's what Howard Smith was trying to do. So he figured that by including women at all, that people who might have voted for it on the basis of race would say, I'm okay with this more progressive cause of race, but uh, women, it's a completely different story. And if we've got to have the women with the race protections, I don't want to vote for this bill. Two things together, not for me. People, let's taper back. We can only make so much progress in a day. We can only build half of Rome in a day is what he was hoping the more segregationist leaning folks would would vote for. But at the end of the day, this female congresswoman from Michigan, she was the one who turned that argument on its nose and said, actually, if you don't include women, then Black women will have more rights because they will be protected because they are Black on the basis of their race not on the basis of their gender. And at the end of the day, that proposed amendment was included and the total bill that was passed, the total bill with that inclusion of because of sex passed 168 to 133. And most of the votes that were in favor came from Republicans and from Southern Democrats, actually. Yeah, I think that regardless of what their motivations were back then, that in the realm of civil rights and social justice, very few legislative acts have had as profound an impact as Title VII has had. And so regardless of of their sneaky, sideways, crooked, classic politician posturing ways, those of us who have come afterwards are, are certainly thankful for it because this was just a landmark piece of legislation. And while I do agree with you, its aim was to eliminate workplace discrimination based on race color, religion, and sex was never contemplated, it's been the starting point for a movement 60 years in the making and one that's still got 60 years more to go. It set the stage for this new era of feminism, feminist activism and activism that's just had never been seen before. Yeah. And I think that it's also really important to think about the fact that Title VII created the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, which I know you and I love to to talk about as we drink our lychee martinis. <laughs> yeah, it was a form a year later to eradicate discrimination in the employment context. And they've certainly kept us busy since. I have nothing but respect for the EEOC as much as I joke about it. I do think that it overshoots a lot of the time. Um, but as much as I kid, I do think that its cause, its purpose, its establishment is worthy of acknowledgement. And it certainly is in terms of, of in, in, the, in the context of women's history, because the EEOC has done a lot to further the women's cause. And we've certainly gone from, on the one hand, a woman's place is in the home to a woman's place is wherever she damn well pleases. And I don't think that could have been done without the EEOC, even though we are on opposite sides of of a caption in any given case. No. And I'll tell you another interesting piece of trivia about the EEOC. The first director of the EEOC was Franklin Roosevelt Jr. And when he was asked, what about sex discrimination? Or he was really asked, what about sex? That was the question that was asked. And his answer was, don't get me started. I'm all for sex, mm-hmm. making this joke. But like you said, there were a, a tremendous number of female attorneys that were really in the trenches in the EEOC in the 1970s that were doing this hard work and making a lot of policy change 
that candidly, I think you and I have to credit for where we are in our careers. So absolutely. Yeah. Where would we be without the, the roads that were paved before us by these trailblazing individuals? And I think the 1960s and 70s had a lot of these defining moments where we had this emergence of a second wave feminism, where reproductive rights, equal pay, gender discrimination, led by iconic figures like Gloria Steinem, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was working for the ACLU back in the 70s, championing these causes. And they all collectively waged this multifaceted campaign to dismantle the patriarchy and the history that created these unequal and oppressive circumstances for women. And I think, like you said before, there's always going to be that joke of who came up with this? Can't I just stay home and just faint on my settee if I need a new dress? But by and large, as much as we like to joke about it, here we are. Yeah. Even back then, there were so many non-employment related restrictions on women. There were, you know, women couldn't have credit cards without their husbands co-signing and and owning property rights was restricted. And workplace, I think that there there's a lot for us to talk about in future episodes about some of the regulations that prevented women who are working in the service industry from working the high tip time frame all for their protection. It's really Title VII being passed with sex discrimination in it is one of the bedrocks of women's advancement, not just in the workplace, but in so many other areas. But what's really interesting and, and why I wanted to go into all of this legislative history and talk about how it came into Title VII, why sex discrimination is included, is because it, it started as a joke and there was some debate on it. But if you look at the hundreds and hundreds of pages of the congressional testimony and the notes that were going back and forth on the versions of this bill, there really is not uh, a lot to explaining why sex discrimination should be included in this other than this idea that it will affect the idea of racial preferences. And so courts over the years, when you read some of these cases, including some of the landmark decisions that we still cite today, courts often go back to the legislative history of the inclusion of sex discrimination in Title VII and talk about why was this included and what did Congress really intend and what did Congress really mean when they included sex discrimination in Title VII. Sometimes it's used as a cop-out where the courts point out that there is very little debate that was had on the topic and therefore there's minimal legislative history to guide the courts in terms of providing intent. And that's actually language that comes directly from the Vinson case, which is a 1986 uh, Supreme Court case that I think we all cite and definitely had to learn about in our employment classes, right? Meritor? Yes, Meritor Meritor Savings Savings Bank. Bank. Yeah. Yeah. That to Um, me is probably one of two, it's a tie for me. If you were to ask me the following question, I will say this. If you were to say, Jackie, what do you think is the most influential Supreme Court case addressing gender rights in the last 50 years? I would tell you it's a tie for me between Meritor Savings Bank, which for those listeners who might not know established sex harassment as an actionable cause of action within the larger class of gender discrimination, sex and gender discrimination, and of course, Roe v. Wade. How could I not? 
So tell us a little more about Vincent. What it, how does what was happening beforehand that harassment wasn't included? And what is harassment anyways for those who need a definition? So prior to the Meritor case, sexual harassment as we know it commonly was not a thing. Gender discrimination was conceived as because of sex. And so fast forward to the Meritor case. So what happened in Meritor? Michelle Vincent was the plaintiff in that case. She was dismissed from her job at the bank and she sued the vice president of the bank, alleging that she'd been subjected to sexual harassment for years at the bank and that she'd been experiencing what we now know as a hostile work environment and that that hostile work environment claim was covered by Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. She sought compensatory and punitive damages against her supervisor and the bank. And the defense argued that there was no such thing as hostile work environment, that unless she had suffered some sort of tangible economic discrimination in the workplace, she had no claim. And the Supreme Court disagreed. They said that you can have a hostile work environment, intangible consequence, and still have a claim under Title VII. And so what the Meritor's decision did was it established what we present day know to be hostile work environment sex harassment claims. So before that, though, what were courts saying about sex harassment claims before it got to the Supreme Court? They were following the other idea that the idea because of sex discrimination doesn't actually relate to sexual harassment and and touching and being groped and things like that. Before that, good luck finding we lived in the era of Mad Men, right? Women were I really love that show. And saying, oh, my goodness, I'm working in a hostile work environment. If it if they didn't, they were insulted almost. It was like, why? I have to look a certain way. I have to be appealing. I have to smell a certain way. I have to. We were lived in the day when airline flight attendants had to weigh a certain weight and wear their hair a certain way. And it that was accepted. So prior to Meritor, the concept of sexual harassment or hostile work environment wasn't so much something that women were really coming forward in droves complaining about. So in this regard, Michelle Vinson was a pioneer. And I could tell you, there's this is also as a woman raised in the Soviet Union, this continues to this day, this mentality of women have to act certain ways, be certain things. My mother, when I tell her what I do for a living, and I'll say I defend sex harassment claims as a woman growing up in USSR, she doesn't understand what sex harassment is. She doesn't think that's a real thing. So you have to appreciate it on a macro cultural level for what this really is saying. And to this day, if you go to another country, they might tell you, what are you talking about? What's sex harassment? That's not a thing. Maybe they need to watch uh, more Mad Men to understand. But that's normal, right? Like my mother would think madman because just culturally in the way that she was brought up, she, this is how she envisions the workplace for women, which begs the question, I don't know what she thinks I experience when I go to work, but, <laughs> but here we are. All right. So sex harassment is included, but what about all of the laws? How does Title VII apply to the laws that were created to, to protect women's sensitivities or that relate to the distinct physical differences between men and women, like the bona fide occupational qualifications and pregnancy-related protections? They're completely different things. Are you asking me about bona fide? 
qualification? Well, both of those have come up in the context of talking about sex discrimination cases and whether women can be prohibited, for example, from applying from a police job or a fire department job. Does that play in at all to Title VII if they can't meet the same physical qualifications as men? Of course it does. Of course it does. Essentially what you're saying in those cases, when you're arguing that a woman or a man, whatever the case might be, has to have a certain physical characteristic or have certain characteristics that are typically associated with a specific gender for a job, it works both ways. It's not just women in male-dominated jobs. It's men, they're not going to go work at Hooters, for example, right? Because the company is built on this ideal of whatever it is that Hooters ideals are, I, <laughs> which is neither here nor there. But if you're going to argue essentially what you're saying as an employer under Title VII is, yes, we are drawing distinctions on the basis of gender. However, we have to. We have legitimate, bona fide occupational qualifications and reasons as to why we need to do that. And that has evolved into a much higher burden than you would think. You can't just say that these qualifications are reasonably necessary to the essence of the business. Um, because if you're substantially excluding everyone who doesn't have those qualifications, you have to have a really pretty high burden of justifying why that has to happen. So in the case of, let's say, public safety, if the employer's objective in asserting a BFOQ is the goal of public safety, the employer is going to have to prove that the challenge practice does absolutely indeed effectuate that goal and that there is no acceptable alternative which would better advance it, or at least equally advance it with less discriminatory impact. That is not an easy burden to do. And the reason is because of Title VII. Title VII was put in place in order to push back against these stereotypes. Now, does Title VII and the sex discrimination provision there does that apply just to women from discrimination by male employers? No, of course not. Historically, and in the original context, it kickstarted with women claiming that they were being harassed by men. But now in more modern times, you know that there's so many cases addressing same gender harassment, females harassing male subordinates, same sex harassment. All of these have been recognized, and a lot of them until just recently, when the Bostock decision came down in 2020, were not really recognized or on the radar. Until Bostock, gender identity and sexual orientation were never even covered by Title VII. There was the 2011 Glenn decision by the 11th Circuit, which was considered pretty progressive at the time, but then they turned around a little bit on Bostock. Yeah, until Bostock, you could in the 11th Circuit say to an employee, I am terminating you based on your sexual orientation. You absolutely could have, and without doing it without violating Title VII. And for the benefit of our listeners, can you talk a little bit about the Bostock case and what that case holds and the, the foundings of that case? Bostock, if you remember, Bostock was um, pretty monumental. Because in Bostock, the employee was gay. He was participating, if memory serves me, on a softball league or something to that effect. And the employer terminated him saying that essentially he didn't really fit the company mold. And I'm using that in air quotes. Like sometimes I say this is chicken <laughs> if I order it from a shady restaurant. 
right? It's, he was essentially, they came out and basically told him, we're firing you because you are gay and you're not man enough for this job. And they defended it on the grounds that they said, we didn't violate Title VII because sexual orientation and gender identity, gender stereotyping, what you believe, are not covered. And that's when the Supreme Court, in a majority opinion, ruled that it most certainly is. That because of sex language in Title VII absolutely does encompass this idea that uh, sexual orientation and gender identity are covered. That was a huge landmark decision. So the the basis of the argument was that it's not because he's a man and he's not being discriminated against because he's a man. It's because he's displaying characteristics that are not typical to what a male stereotype is. It was because he was gay. What's the what's the male stereotype that men like women, right? Maybe not in 2024 anymore, but right. I don't know. That's true. Now with the the term of gender is even so ill-defined. I'm not sure that's even what they were talking about. Always wonder when I read this and it says sex discrimination, my head automatically immediately wants to start translating that into gender discrimination. And I think that there are a lot of debates about is gender and sex the same thing? And it gets very political, but I don't think- I always thought they were. I'll tell you, I'll be the first to tell you. I always believed that gender and sex were the same thing, definitionally. Sure. And I think that in 1964, when this was passed, they probably did think of them as the same thing, right? Yeah. yeah. And I agree. And I'm. we haven't seen any cases yet that have actually gone on to define. They just passed, I think, did you read in the news about in Alabama or whatever, I think it was Alabama, where they passed a law defining gender or sex on the basis of reproductive organs. Which really leads you to to wonder what happens if you have a hysterectomy. Exactly. We will am, only time will tell. We am will I asexual tell. then? You might be. You might they're be. Gonna have, you they're gonna have to create a new sexless. line on the. They're gonna have to create a new line on the survey. And what I've been in, in, told, sex is link, linked to your reproductive organs and gender is far more fluid than that. There can be no gender. There could be multi gender. There could be you know, tra- as we know, transgender. So gender is different than sex. Are there any protections then for gender-based discrimination? Absolutely. Title seven. If they're read synonymously. Even still, until they're not, you're going to have, and we're, we will find that case. It will come down. And no doubt Alito and your boyfriend, Roberts, will have some opinions. He has- Your boyfriend who doesn't know he's your boyfriend. <laughs> I did not receive any phone calls from Capitol Police, so let's just keep it that way. One of the cases that I always really like to talk about when we're talking about the history of Title VII is the Price Waterhouse versus Hopkins case. And I, we jumped forward a little bit talking about the Bostock case and the Glenn case, which was a transgender person who was transitioning from male to female, and the 11th Circuit dealt with that in 2011. But I think that really the launching pad for those two was the Price Waterhouse case uh, from the 1980s. Do you do you like that case? What are your thoughts on that case, Jackie? I, do I like that case? Again, air quotes. I think it's a really important case because of just the legal precedent that was established there about proving mixed motive cases, which is something we are not getting into on this episode. I think it's an important case in the tapestry that is 
you know, all of legal precedent. But it's all it's interesting in the sense that case dealt with sort of gender stereotyping, right? The plaintiff in that case was told she just wasn't feminine enough, basically. She was too aggressive. She was too all of the things that she wasn't supposed to be that she was believed to need to be back then, right? Isn't that yeah, I, I actually have some of the quotes from her from her review that I always like to look at because this is something I think that professional women today are even dealing with is a lot of times we get criticized for having traits that in men are complimented. One of her senior partners reviewed her and said her work is great, but she could go to charm school. Or uh, another one said, I think that the problem with her profanity is that it's coming out of the mouth of a woman. uh, And so people really don't respond well to that. Those are just a couple of the examples of the reasons that she wasn't promoted to partner, even though she had this tremendous book of business at PricewaterhouseCooper, which is still a very prestigious accounting firm. It's one of the big four accounting firms now. And I think that you're right. So from a personal perspective, you can identify with this plaintiff, but the Supreme Court decision and the gender stereotypes, the character traits associated with genders, that really has opened the door for a lot of the litigation that has happened since then. And I think it's made these sex discrimination cases a little bit more nebulous in some ways, don't you think? A hundred percent, but not just in litigation. I think taking off my legal cap for a second The idea of gender stereotyping has plagued every facet of employment since the dawn of time. Women are expected to act a certain way, convey themselves a certain way. And this is something, you know, when it comes to salary negotiations, this is most notable. For example, women who who are assertive and who speak up and who ask for something are considered bitchy, they're considered aggressive, they're considered too much. When men do it, however, they're strong and they're assertive and they are, it's commendable. In Forget all the legal stuff associated with it. There's just these practical considerations that as part of the women's movement and as part of Women's History Month that we have to reflect on how difficult it is to just overcome in every aspect in the employment world anyway. So looking ahead in our month of March with women's history and recognizing sex or gender-based discrimination, what do you think our next topic should be? Money. Show me the money, baby. That's very Jerry Maguire. I was going to start singing money, money. Yeah, pay equity. We still, for as far as we've come, women still make 84 cents on the dollar. And part of it, I'm not going to say it's our fault, and we'll talk about this in our next podcast. A closed mouth never gets fed, hon. You got to get out there and fight. And that part of the problem is, like I said, the stereotypes that prevent women from reaching out and wanting to ask for more because we don't want to be viewed in a negative way. So what is March 12th? What is What holiday are we celebrating on March 12th? Pay Equity Day. I know that you love that one. I do. <laughs> All right. I- so what our lovely listeners can look forward to is an episode dropping on March 12th related to Equal Pay Day. And Jackie, I know, has done a lot of work preparing this and has lots of statistics. So hopefully this episode has given everybody 
a taste of how we ended up where we're at and why Title VII has been so important, not just for women, but in advancing transgender and gay rights as well. And we will look forward to talking about pay equity on March 12th. For now, if any of our listeners have any questions about this episode or they want to talk about other issues related to women in the workplace, you have any ideas you'd like us to talk about or address, or you want to tell us why we're wrong about something, I always look forward to those. Please feel free to reach out to us at litigatorslounge at hallboothsmith.com. And until then, I will enjoy the fruits of my feminist labor by by spending money on overpriced cocktails. What about you, Jackie? I'll, I'll be joining you. Cheers from inside the litigators lounge to all those trailblazers who turned the word no into nevertheless, she persisted. And this idea of can't into go ahead and watch me. So cheers to that. Cheers. Thank you for joining us on Litigators Lounge. This show is brought to you by Hall Booth Smith, helping clients navigate the complexities of workplace legal issues. For more information, go to hallboothsmith.com. The Litigators Lounge is a production brought to you by Hall Booth Smith. This podcast is published for the purposes of providing general information and education on topics which include those related to the law and legal issues but the contents of this podcast do not constitute legal advice. Listening to this podcast or utilizing the information contained in it in any way does not constitute, nor does it create an attorney-client relationship between you and Hall, Booth, Smith, or its lawyers. The contents of this podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a professional attorney licensed in your jurisdiction.